Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of uh, introducing to this podcast one of our IJGC fellows, actually, Catherine Hicks-Courant, who is a fellow, a last-year fellowship in the Division of Gynecological Oncology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, we're really glad to have her as uh, we, um, I think certainly we, we uh, need to discuss this very important topic um, that is also part of the uh, lead article for our journal uh, titled Intensity of End-of-Life Care for Gynecologic Cancer Patients by Primary Gynecologic Oncologist Specialty. So really looking forward uh, to discussing this topic. And Catherine, thank you so much once again for accepting our invitation and, um, and congratulations on, on this publication. Um, so really looking forward to uh, speaking with you. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this more. So Catherine, let's, let's get started. Um, you know, certainly with regards to this topic, it's an important topic for us as gynecologic oncologists, obviously. Um, um, the end of life management is uh, really critical, not only for for patients and and the, and the healthcare team, but also for families as well. So I wanted to just start by asking you um, as to why you and your team took the initiative to perform this study. Why was this question relevant? Yeah, I think it's an important question. I really what brought me to this question was really something that struck me as a third year med student learning about GYN oncology, which is how GYN oncologists uh, do both the surgery and are trained to do the chemotherapy for their patients, which means that our patients very uniquely can either get their care, they may get their surgery with a gynoc, but then they can get their chemotherapy with either a GYN oncologist or a medical oncologist. And that kind of creates a unique natural experiment, if you will, to learn about how specialties and um, specialty training and background may affect patients' outcomes and treatment courses. And so after kind of delving into this question a bit, you know, there's been some research looking at the impact of oncologist specialty on oncology outcomes and treatment course, but not so much on end-of-life care, which is really where my interest has always been with palliative care and end-of-life care. And so I was really curious how, given that that is such an important um, and, of course, emotionally charged part of patients' disease experiences, I was really curious how um, we could, if there are ways, different factors like system factors, provider factors, patient factors that impact that end-of-life experience. And so oncologist specialty seemed like an interesting one to focus on. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. And also to highlight, as you mentioned, that um, gynecologic oncology patients, uh, particularly also in the United States, they, they can be cared for by the gynecologic oncologist, by a medical oncologist. Um, and, and also, and, you know, certainly in, in other countries, uh, once the surgery is done, then the care ultimately, go, you know, sort of passed on to a medical oncologist. So I think that this will really be of interest to, to not only um, our community here in the United States, but also... Um, internationally. And a couple of observations that I was, as I was reading your, your manuscript, uh, um, I heard that healthcare utilization increases in the last month of life, uh, where some might consider that, you know, it would kind of be the opposite when, when patients are sort of like, you know, slowing down on the aggressiveness of, of the, of the treatment, 
So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Because it was kind of contrasting to what some might think may be the course. Yeah, I agree. It's not the most intuitive at first. And I, I think that there that's for several reasons. And I think we can kind of group patients into a few different categories. So there is a sub, one category where we know a patient's not doing well. We know they're at the end of life. And, you know, we are all aware of that and we make a plan to de-escalate care. And so that's what we traditionally think of. Then there's a subset of patients who we know they're not doing well, but maybe they're not ready to de-escalate care, but they decline. And so we escalate care to match their decline and eventually they pass away. But then there's another subset of patients who we are not expecting them to die. And we as physicians are actually not that great at predicting um, when patients are going to die. And so it's, it's hard to know from this data set and from others used whether it's um, kind of which category our patients are falling into. Um, but I think it's a mix of all of those. And I think that increase in healthcare utilization is probably driven by those last two categories. Good and interesting. And, and you also mentioned that the, the majority of gynecologic oncology patients are, are managed by um, gynecologic oncologists rather than a palliative care team at the end of life. And and certainly, I'm you know certainly in the United States, uh, the, the, it, it is the norm to to I think to have a palliative care team available to cancer patients. In many other countries, that's the case. So why is it um, that these patients are not being cared for by the palliative care team? Is that appropriate? Uh, that a gynecologic oncologist is the caregiver all the way to the end of life? What are your thoughts on that? So I'm a huge proponent of palliative care, and I, I think that palliative care should be introduced as really as early as possible because I think building those relationships with the palliative care team and focusing on symptom management can only help patients and their families. That being said, uh, I, we just don't have enough palliative care specialists. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, and this is purely anecdotal experience, I think at our cancer center, we only have two physician, palliative care physicians dedicated to our cancer center. And we're one of the largest cancer centers in the region. And so we just don't have enough palliative care at this point to kind of go around for all of our patients. So part of it is a resource issue. I think part of it is also a cultural issue of, of providers not making the referrals maybe when they should be made or rec whether that's because they don't want to or because they don't recognize the opportunity um, or when it's the right, the most appropriate time to do so. Yeah, really important point. And uh, now getting on to your study and the study that's gonna be the lead article, um, tell us about the methodology and the, um, if you can just focus a little bit on, on the database that you used and what were the inclusion, exclusion criteria and also the, the, the outcomes. Yeah, so we, this is a retrospective cohort study. We used SEER Medicare data, uh, which is really interesting. SEER is, I think, very pretty popular to be used for some of these large retrospective studies. And it is a large tumor registry in the United States that pulls from different regions across the US so that the, the cohort that it develops is representative, uh, so at least by sociodemographics, um, of the general US population. So it's considered very representative of the United States. And then what is kind of extra unique about SEER, not only do you get pretty detailed information about the cancers um, 
but you, it's also can be linked to Medicare claims data. So then you can get very granular detail about healthcare utilization. Uh, so that is the data set that we used, SEER um, linked with Medicare claims data. So because, with that uh, data set, because it's Medicare claims, you are a little limited in the population. So our cohort is 65 years old or older. So that's when 65 being when patients are uh, citizens in the U.S. are eligible for uh, Medicare. Uh, so six, they needed to have been at least 65, needed to have had at least a year of Medicare claims so that we could actually have data upon which to draw for the study. Uh, they had to have died of a GYN cancer and that needed to be their only cancer and we had to know about it before they died. So it couldn't have been diagnosed at time of autopsy. And they needed to have seen a medical or a GYN oncologist in the outpatient setting in the year prior to death. So those were our main uh, inclusion criteria. The exclusion criteria, uh, patients needed to be in fee-for-service Medicare so that we had all of their claims data and not Medicare Advantage, uh, which is basically managed by private insurance and we would not have access to that data. So those patients were not included. Um, and then they, I think th that was the main exclusion criteria for our outcomes. Our primary outcome was a composite score to represent high intensity care at the end of life. So it was a binary outcome, it had seven components. Um, so if a patient had any of the seven sort of components of high intensity care, then they scored positively uh, for high intensity care at the end of life. And each component has been used in prior literature to suggest high intensity care. Um, and those components include receipt of chemotherapy in the last 14 days of life, death in the hospital, enrolled in hospice for less than three days, and then more than one ED visit, hospital admission uh, in the last 30 days of life, any ICU admission in the last 30 days of life, and then spending more than 14 days in the hospital in the last uh, 30 days of life. So with any of those, then a patient would score positively for our primary outcome. We had two then secondary outcomes as well. So one was invasive procedures at the end of life in the last 30 days, and the other was Medicare spending in the last 30 days. Great. And uh, one, as you know, many of the questions come from the fellows and, and you yourself who will be participating in proposing questions for these future podcasts. Yeah. Um, so one of them comes from uh, one of your colleagues, Hussein, uh, and he's just asking specifically uh, with regards to one of your primary outcomes, uh, you mentioned that it was chemotherapy in the last 14 days of life. Um, his question is also, it, does this database provide information about any targeted therapy or immunotherapy? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I, I even did go back and confirm, but it does include also targeted therapy or immunotherapy as well. Um, so it, we were able to search the database for any cancer-directed therapy that patients received. Um, so that when we say chemotherapy in the last 14 days of life, we do include targeted agents and immunotherapy. Okay, great. So the, <clears throat> what did you find as the results of the study? What are the highlights you want uh, everyone to, to remember uh, from, uh, from this study? Yeah, so I think my, one of my biggest takeaways was that overall, regardless of whether our patients see medical oncologists or GYN oncologists, they are getting 
pretty high into a large proportion of them over 50% are getting high intensity care at the end of life. Um, when we broke it down between medonks and gynonks, and I should say in our, we had over 12,000 patients, two thirds had a medical primary medical oncologist in that last um, month of, or last year of life. And one third saw a GYN oncologist as their primary oncologist per our definitions. Um, so when we broke it down into those categories, it was about 56% of medical oncology patients had aggressive care at the end of life and around 54% of GYN oncology patients did. So it was statistically significantly different, but uh, was just a couple of percentage points difference. Uh, in addition, we saw um, that GYN oncology patients had more procedures about 43% of GYN oncology patients underwent an invasive procedure in the last month compared to about 40% of medical oncology patients. Uh, and then GYN oncology patients also had higher spending by about $10,000 um, So GYN in that last 30 days. So GYN oncology patients around 83,000 versus in the low 70s for medical oncology patients. And, and one of the one of the terms you mentioned was high intensity end of life care. Um, how is that defined? So that is referring to that composite score. Uh, so if they had if they had any of those seven components of high intensity care, um, then we considered that to, to be aggressive end of life care or high intensity care at the end of life. Okay, so uh, these several questions are from Jessica Sun, again, one of your uh, fellow colleagues. And um, her first question is that, that there were several differences in the baseline demographics. How do you think this might have impacted the results, if any? Um, and also, do you have any data on patients' quality of life for either group? And that, that, uh, that's an interesting point uh, with regards to who cares for the patient at the end of life. Is the quality of life different? Yeah, so I think those are both really excellent questions. Uh, to address the first one first, so Jessica's completely right. Our baseline demographic data was a little bit different for the two groups. And I think that that is not too surprising. I think it really reflects that the pathways patients take to either medical oncology care versus GYN oncology care are complex and there are multiple reasons that patients may end up with one versus the other. And some might be, again, system level, cultural, hospital level, but some may be patient level as well. So I think this is a fascinating area um, of investigation and I'm very curious uh, how that will proceed. But um, this, how this affected our results, we did, we did control for all of those baseline demographic characteristics in our analyses and our regressions. And so within our analyses, we controlled for those as best we could. And then we also did some sensitivity analyses using propensity score matching uh, to also help us kind of control for those differences and do a comparison where our groups actually looked much more similar. And our results were consistent across those analyses as well. In regards to the quality of life question, yeah, that's a, a fa fantastic question and incredibly relevant. Um, we unfortunately don't have any quality of life data in this data set, it's just not included. But what we know from prior literature that has looked at quality of life at the end of life, um, it, especially in GYN cancer patients, 
patients who do receive more intense end-of-life care um, by the metrics uh, or very similar metrics to what we included, um, they do have lower quality of life at the end of life. And then furthermore, for their loved ones, the bereavement processes are, uh, are harder, um, are more protracted and more difficult. So it definitely has an impact on patients and their families outside of just what they go through to actually receive and experience the care. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for pointing that out with regards to quality of life. It's uh, really puts things in perspective and how we uh, we manage our patients. Um, and the second question from Jessica is, was there a trend in geography or other practice patterns when it comes to which specialty takes care of end of life? Yeah, not a clear trend that um, that are that we looked for or that our data kind of made very obvious. I think looking at certainly looking at our demographic data, um, the distributions within each category, say like age or region, were different. But in terms of like, you know, is it all in the southwest of the U.S. where we're seeing these differences? That kind of thing didn't hold up. Um, some differences or patterns it looked like are the medical oncologists saw more of the ovarian had a higher proportion of ovarian cancer patients and a lower proportion of uterine <laughs> cancer patients which does make sense with how those those treatments courses tend to be um, and then medical oncologist patients had higher proportion of advanced stage cancer patients um, but otherwise we didn't see any clear geographic or practice pattern to kind of suggest special, like how patients are distributed to the different specialties. But to be fair, we also weren't looking for that specifically. Okay. Um, and it's a great idea for someone to do. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it sounds like your co-fellows are giving you lots of very good ideas for future Oh, I studies. love it. <laughs> so one of the other things I wanted to ask you, it, it seems that there were about 10% of patients that received chemotherapy in the last 14 days of life, I mean, like in the last two weeks of life, 10% of patients received chemotherapy, 11% were admitted to the ICU in the last 30 days of life. You are, you are obviously in this field, you're, you're, this is your area of interest. It, it, are these good numbers or really do we need to improve upon this? I think that we could maybe improve upon this, but I also think that there is going to be some level that cannot be improved upon, in part because we have patients who we just don't know that they're going to die. Uh, and sometimes getting chemotherapy, for example, is the last thing that pushes them over. Uh, and we're just not, we just don't have good tools, even with our, there's I think a study that was recently published that even with our best machine learning tools, we still couldn't predict well who was going to die mm. and who wasn't. So I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it that is very important to talk about with when we're talking about aggressive care at the end of life is that for some patients, that's very concordant with their goals. Uh, and they say, yes, I know I might die, but I want to do everything I can do. And I really understand the consequences and it's really important to me. And so for those patients, it, for our metrics, it might not be appropriate, but for those patients and their families, that actually might be the right care for those patients. 
I don't know what that percentage between those two kind of category, like types of patients is, whether that's around 10%, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. So I think we could probably still keep trying to do better and keep trying to do a better job of figuring out who, what patients um, we should be escalating care on and what patients um, it's really futile and we're putting them, we're causing suffering potentially, but I think it's a, it's really hard. And, um, and I do think there's some number that we're just not going to do better than that, but 10% seems high still. So one of the other things you mentioned was that gynecologic oncologists are more likely to perform invasive procedure at the end of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, why? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that I was, I was a little surprised by, by this outcome, um, especially because it's a little incongruous with the fact that our gynocs had overall lower high intensity score. Um, but one, I mean, the easy answer is that we're surgeons. And so like when you're a surgeon, everything looks like surgery. Uh, but I think that one, when we looked at what the most common procedures were, a lot of them typically are used for palliative intent. We aren't, weren't able to tell intent, um, but oh, there were paracentesis, thoracentesis, that kind of thing. So those procedures are we did include. And so I think that some of it is just procedure, invasive procedures that may actually be appropriate for, at the end of life. And then it is possible that as GYN oncologists, we're just more comfortable with those. And those are more commonly used in our, you know, our toolboxes. Yeah. So that gets me to the next question. Is it that um, our institutions are doing anything different or our programs doing anything different with regards to the training of medical oncologists versus gynecologic oncologists versus palliative care teams? Yeah, I do think that training is probably a big part of this. And it would also be interesting to see how these numbers are, would be different for groups that have really integrated multidisciplinary teams versus um, like one oncologist kind of pushing someone's care forward. But I think there is something really, and this is, again, just my hypothesis, having thought about this and talked to people and um, based on some anecdotal data. But um, I do think there is something kind of fundamentally different about a surgeon's training versus a, an internal medicine-based training. I think internal medicine folks are much more used to seeing really sick patients and older patients and uh, treating them and compared to OBGYN trained where yes, in gyne-onc we see sick patients, but for the most part, our patients are on the younger side and on the healthier side. And so our like fundamental residency background is very different. And then as surgeons, it's a pretty binary question of, is this patient appropriate for, is, is surgery appropriate for this patient or not? And that's something that we are trained to ask ourselves and to make a decision about with not too much gray area. And so I think that we are a little bit better maybe at looking at a patient and saying, you are not fit for the treatment, whether it is surgery or chemotherapy or whatever it is, because a large part of our training is has been 
determining whether a patient is appropriate for surgery or whether you know a treatment is appropriate for the patient, which I think is just different than an internal medicine background um, where that's, you know, they are learning a ton and doing a ton of things that I am certainly not trained to do, um, but it is a different skill set. And I, I suspect that that's what we're seeing happening here. Yeah. One of the next questions is uh, Christina Ewing, one of your co-fellows as well. Um, inter interesting question. She says, uh, do, do medical oncologists have more access to clinical trials compared to gynecologic oncologists? And could this be the reason for higher level of high intensity treatment in the last 30 days of life? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I have a full answer to it. I'm not sure whether medical oncologists versus GYN oncologists have different access to trials. I think it's really very hospital dependent and infrastructure dependent. So there are probably certainly places where medons do have more access compared to gynons, but also vice versa. Um, and whether it could be the reason for the higher level of treatment, uh, I am not sure. We, because we were only able to capture um, medications that were billed to patients' insurance, I don't know whether the patients were on clinical trials or not at the end of life. And any experimental drugs would not have been included um, in that data set. So I think it's, it's an interesting question of whether patients, I guess patients who are on trial may have different experiences at the end of life compared to those who are not on trial. Um, but I don't know the answer to that, but another great question. <laughs> um, one of the things you mentioned um, was the cost. Obviously, you know, end of life can be exceedingly costly financially, obviously, in addition to all of the other ramifications of, of end of life. Um, tell us what you found a little bit with regards to the spending of yeah. uh, end of life and, and the relevance that this might have. Yeah, so we found that gynon patients had higher spending at the end of life. So we looked at just the last 30 days of life um, and it was by about $10,000. And we were able to break down the different components of the Medicare claims. And it looked like most of that difference was in the sort of inpatient category. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily being driven by hospice or outpatient care or that kind of thing. In terms of why there is a difference, it's a little harder to say. I think it's possible that the invasive procedures are driving that, um, just that difference in invasive procedures could certainly be doing it. Um, but otherwise, you know, there could be other things in, components of care that are different that we just weren't capturing as well. Um, whether what its relevance is, I mean, it's, it's again, it's kind of tough to say. I think at the end of life, we do, for a lot of patients, we do see costs overall going up. Um, but it's, again, a sort of tough time and to target because it's very hard to predict. Um, but I, it is it is representative of the fact that we are, that patients are still getting aggressive care. We are escalating care um, for a lot of these patients. And one of the things you mentioned, um, which I think also obviously is very important, particularly in these discussions, um, I've been faced with this, obviously all of us have been faced with this uh, with regards to, well, it's the patient 
that wants to have the most aggressive treatment all the way to the end of life is the patient that says, I want everything done. Is the patient that says, I want chemotherapy until my last day of life. How do we deal with that? Yeah, those are the those situations I also really struggle with um, because we often have a different perspective than what our patients have. And but I think ultimately, you know, we we do the best we can and we really try to counsel patients as well as we can. And if they're really adamant, I mean, it can always fall back on you don't have to offer every you know, level of care if it's really not appropriate and it may just cause more suffering. Um, but I also think it's really important to have the family on board um, because in situations where you're really escalating care to meet a patient's wishes and providing kind of goal concordant care, it can really end up putting the family um, or the healthcare proxies, the decision ultimate decision makers once a patient say isn't able to make their own decisions anymore can really put them in a very difficult position. Um, and so I think it sometimes these patients are kind of easy to recognize and sometimes they're really hard to recognize until you're in it with them. Um, but that's when I think communication is especially with families, not just with the patient is really, really crucial. But it's just a really hard situation. And you know, when I've been in those situations, I have taken comfort in knowing that I was at least providing the care that was important to the patient and what they wanted. Yeah, really well said. Um, so now, Catherine, when you look on your study, on your own study, what would you say are the limitations that should be highlighted? Yeah. So I think we already mentioned a couple with this database. It's just an older subset of our patients, all 65 and older, who have a certain kind of insurance. So that is just a just a limitation there that it's not necessarily generalizable to the entire uh, gynog patient population. Other limitations, um, one another one we already mentioned is we weren't able to kind of capture quality of life or patient goals or values. We don't know if the care that we captured was goal concordant or not. And you could argue that if the patient is receiving goal concordant care, then that's still valuable, even if it's considered intense or expensive. Um, other limitations, there's always with a study like this, a risk of misclassification bias where either patients are misclassified as a medonc patient or gynonc patient, or providers are misclassified as a medonc or a gynonc. And um, so with this, we really think that if patients or providers were misclassified, that would have biased our results to the null. Um, so it's possible in that case, if there is a large bias that we that the true result is actually a bigger difference than what we're seeing. Um, other limitations, um, I think those were those are the biggest ones for this study. Um, oh, and the other one, we just had very limited hospital data. And then also we didn't have, um, we unfortunately didn't really have data on palliative care specialists or palliative care specialty care in this data set. Um, the palliative care specialty code was not very reliable, so we weren't able to use that. Yeah. So as, as promised, and I'm sure as a senior fellow at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, your, your, your time is limited. So I uh, wanted to keep it to 
about 30 minutes on this discussion. So as a last question, uh, actually, this comes from Christina Ewing as well. Um, how do you think we can promote or implement better shared decision making with patients with appropriate early involvement with palliative care? Yeah, I, this is a really fascinating area of clinical work and research. I think there have been more studies coming out recently looking at ways that we can do this, whether it's through kind of nurse-led interventions in the chemotherapy suites or early referrals to palliative care. And um, there are limitations, as I mentioned, of just our resources. But I think really building strong relationships as, as GYN oncologists, building strong relationships with our palliative care colleagues, uh, there are some great kind of um, conversation guides to help have these conversations with patients and elicit what their values are um, around care and getting sicker, not to make explicit decisions, but as you move forward in their disease course to help guide those conversations and kind of give help as providers and provider teams um, help recognize when we're at a decision point that may not be concordant with that patient's values. Uh, so I think there are some really great resources for those kinds of um, conversations, but it's really, I think, ongoing discussion and collaboration with these multidisciplinary teams and also with nursing APPs um, and trainees who are helping take care of patients. Um, but I think early conversations with patients and really trying to understand what's important to them is really important. But it, it does involve quite a bit of a cultural shift um, for a lot of people and places. And so it's a real concerted effort. And I would love to hear other people's experiences and, and advice on this because I think there's not a you know one way fits all. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Catherine Hicks-Courant from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you. Uh, this has really been a pleasure. Thank you for this discussion. Uh, you will hear from others in, during the Journal Club that I would love to invite everyone to, to uh, join us and participate as well. Uh, congratulations on this work and uh, thank you so much for what you've done uh, and your contributions so far. I'm really looking forward to uh, many other contributions, perhaps uh, coming from those ideas that uh, were discussed uh, today in our, in our podcast. So thank you, Catherine, as always. Thank you so much. This is great.